Welcome to episode seven of the Live, Lift, Love podcast, PED's Positive Enriching Discussions. I'm your host, Clifford Janice. Today's episode is titled, The Need for Balancing Your Masculine and Feminine. You can find me on IG and Twitter at Gold's Conditioning, and you can listen to the Live, Lift, Love podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Be sure to like, subscribe, share, and if you visit the Live, Lift, Love podcast on the Gold's Conditioning website, please be sure to leave a comment. So back here for episode seven, I'm excited to, I guess, have this momentum, you know, be, being more committed and being able to have guests and doing this uh, podcast more frequently. Today, I have a, uh, I guess, old friend um, from maybe 2005, I'd say. Um, her name is Vanessa Seta Ducato. And she will correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll bring her in right now. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Clifford. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, did I get the last name right? I've, I've been I've been practicing all day. <laughs> you got it eventually at the end. Yeah, Seta Ducato. That works. Seta Ducato. Got it, got it. Okay. <laughs> How's it going today? Good, good. How about you? How are you? Doing pretty good. Um, the sun is setting in uh, Denver. Nice sunny day today. Went for a run. So today's closing, closing out pretty well. Nice. Yeah, we're getting that golden hour here in LA. We're just a little, we're, what, is that an hour behind you? So yeah, the, the sun will be setting here too soon. And it oh, was cool. 2005. I can't believe it. It's been 15 years. It's crazy to think about it. Um, So there's some, some pretext. We went to college together. Um, mm -hmm. You okay with sharing the name? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So University of, of Bridgeport in Connecticut. And we actually met because you were roommates with a... Uh, a, a woman I knew from elementary school, which was crazy, who I, who I hadn't seen for probably like 15, 15 to 10 years. So yeah, we just, we met through that mutual acquaintance. And I think you said you, you left Bridgeport after the first year? I did. Yeah. I left after the first year. I, I ended up going to um, Hofstra right after that. Um, but I loved Bridgeport and I loved my roommate, your friend from Brooklyn. Um, it was such a like cool community of people. Um it was a fun time. Yeah, definitely. Um, Bridgeport was a fun, weird, and kind of unique experience for me. Um, just being 18, fresh out of high school, and I was doing dental hygiene, and everyone I was hanging around with was in their 40s or 30s. So just, I don't know, just a different perspective and a lot of, I guess, growth in terms of just experience, experience in life and not really living the full college experience my initial first year. Uh, just because I was just focused on school and you know, just didn't want to disappoint, you know, I was, I had tunnel vision and just getting, get doing, doing the work and getting my good grades. Mm -hmm. and finally, my second year, I kind of loosened up and had a bit more fun, but yeah, overall, um, it was a, a amazing experience. Yeah. I always, it's so funny that you say that because it always felt that way to me. You always felt older and serious. And for me, it's so funny because college was the reverse. I feel like when I was at Bridgeport, that was when I was like full on like college party mode. <laughs> and then after that, I got serious about school. <laughs> so it was it was interesting that we were in very different places at that same time. <laughs> right. I, th I think I'm still serious and older. <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to change, unfortunately. Nothing wrong um, with that. <laughs> so to start, I wrote this in... Your, the book that you ordered for me, the the Never Hide uh, Working Retail, Working Your Brand book, but mm -hmm. you were a main motivation in terms of me kind of getting back in gear with the work that I've been wanting to do. Um, 
like I had podcast episodes from like four or five years ago and they were just sitting there and I had the idea to kind of, or I had the desire to put the work in again, but I kept put, putting it off. But I started following your Hungry Feminine account on Instagram and just saw you doing the, the consistent work. And, you know, it just inspired me to put myself out there more. So again, you know, thank you for that. And I'm glad that re-inspiration came full circle and now I can have you as the guest on my podcast. Yeah, it's um, it's it's still so cool to hear it. And some part of me still doesn't quite know what to do with it. But um, it's mutual because, I, you know, and we can talk about this as we go. But you know that um, I've been having issues with my own podcast and like finding the right kind of energy to follow and the inspiration and all of that. And so I think actually in turn following you has helped me kind of reconnect with my own path as I go through this. So I think that's such a beautiful thing to be able to just really to be open to that, that sort of inspiration from people. Um, But that's what happens when you just put yourself out there, right? Yeah. You, you, you feed on each other's energy uh, in in a, in a positive way. Right. Um, (laughs) And you know, you balance energy and kind of like you said, a, a lot of my hesitancy or just lack of interest at times of doing the podcast is just energy and kind of embracing the soak or, or embracing the funk, um, worrying that mm-hmm. the content is good, isn't good. And I, I still have that issue to this day. I'll record an episode and I'll, I'll go through the process and I'll be like, this is like, what am I even talking about? <laughs> but then I'll do the edits. And when I listen to the final product, I'm like, that was kind of good. <laughs> and I, you know, I still got to, still got to reassure myself. Still don't have that a hundred percent confidence. Um, in believing that everything that I do is going to touch gold. So it keeps me humble and it keeps me focused, which is, I guess, still good at this point. Yeah, totally. And and likewise, and I have found that the thing that helps me, because when I record podcast episodes, I too, I'm like, what, what, are, this makes no sense. This is just me rambling. Like, who <laughs> right, really right. know what to do with this, right? So I will wait a couple of days and then listen to it again, like having completely forgotten about it. And I'm like, oh, this actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> right, right, right. Just yeah. patience and, you know, trust in the process and trusting, I guess, believing in ourselves that, you know, we're doing it for a reason. You know, we have these themes and we have the overall um, brand philosophy for a reason. And, you know, we're, we're sticking to it. We just need to, I guess, keep believing, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And neither one of us uh, are particularly narcissistic people. So I know that that's like not the thing that's driving this. It really is about, the, the philosophy, the ideology behind what we're trying to share with people. Um, and so if that's it at the end of the day, then that means something. And we got to keep coming back to it, even on the awkward times, even when it feels like we're not the person for it, it's ours. And so we've got to right. keep crafting it because it's important. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a bit of narcissism. Um, and I think the idea of, I guess, personal development or the desire to kind of guide people. I think there's a bit of uh, arrogance in terms of thinking that we know best, but you know, we we back it up with our experiences and by, you know, being vulnerable and being honest and being forthright. So it's not coming from a place where we're just talking down to the audience. It's a place of, you know, building and, and guiding and sharing our experiences that have led us to think we're competent in in guiding, guiding people and it, it, it works it, it it really does yeah i mean a, a little healthy narcissism is needed right <laughs> um, especially if you are if you're gonna put yourself as like the name and the face behind something for sure 
Uh, but it's not the thing that, that puts us to sleep at night. You know, I don't go to sleep thinking I did a good, I wrote a good blog post on the hungry feminine and people are going to think that I'm amazing. It's like, no, <laughs> you know, like I put out something that's maybe meaningful. It's meaningful to me. And so right. if it's meaningful to me, it might be meaningful to somebody else. And that's Absolutely. cool, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, with that, let's transition into the the idea of the hungry feminine. Um, you know, I'm really interested. I, I listened to a few of your episodes these past couple of days, just to kind of become more refamiliarized with the hungry feminine. But, you know, again, I, I just want to, for the, for my listeners, I want to share your story and what kind of led to the hungry feminine and you kind of build, building your brand and I guess, you know, cr- be, being a content creator in the information age. <laughs> yeah. Which is ever evolving. Um, right. Yeah. So I think what's so interesting and I'm, I'm having sort of a visceral reaction to this right now, as I realize this is, I didn't know this, um, certainly at the time, but the Hungry Feminine really did start back when I was at the University of Bridgeport. And it technically didn't start until many, many years later when I was in graduate school, um, trying to figure out what I was going to write for my thesis. Um, But the story that kept coming back to me as I was trying to figure out what was important to me from a psychological perspective, because that's what I was getting my master's in was psychology. It was like, what is the thing about myself that I still haven't quite figured out that would be worth writing about so that I can both figure that out and also share that and be vulnerable and, and sort of let that breathe as maybe a, a tool for other people. And so what I had ended up deciding to write my thesis on was my long history of having an eating disorder that I never realized. I never named it that. I never recognized that I was engaging in those patterns. But going to school for psychology and having all of this information in front of me really allowed me to contextualize my experiences up until that point. And the year that I spent at Bridgeport was really significant for me in terms of recognizing the ways in which my eating disorder um, was controlling my life and, and the impacts that it had on me. And, uh, you know, it was that they, they always say that when you when you start college, you're either going to like gain 15 pounds or lose 15 pounds, right? Like that's like a sort right. of uh, urban legend, although I think it's actually pretty true. Um, and for me, I lost so much weight my first year of college that it was it, way, it far surpassed 15 pounds. And in hindsight, um, I kind of had to look at that and, and figure out why that was. And I, and I knew a lot of the behaviors that had led me to that. I would say probably most of the time that you saw me at Bridgeport, I probably hadn't eaten anything at all that day. And I was going through periods, such strict periods of restriction. Um, And that was because of stress. That was because of, you know, not advocating for myself to find food at times when it might be difficult. Like if uh, the cafe was closed and I didn't know where else to get food, I just sort of accepted that as is. Um, And, and, and those were the surface reasons that I was doing it. But the truth is, is that I had an eating disorder and I was so curious about how I could have had this for so long and never realized the impacts that it was having on me. So that was, that was where just the inquiry about this came about while I was in graduate school. And the the particular school that I went to um, was very much about archetypes. It was very much about art and image and psychology, not so much about the clinical approach to psychology, but more about like a spiritual depthy kind of like what's under the surface, what, what are the unconscious things present? And I, that was how I, I combined eating disorders and an unconscious exploration. And I ended up uh, naming my thesis, The Hungry Feminine and a Patriarchal Gag Order, Binge Eating in American Women. And wow, I like that. 
Yeah, it, it's so powerful to people that the the patriarchal gag order um, part really seems to like, <laughs> have an impact on people. And I don't say it with with blame or like contempt for the patriarchy or like damn the man kind of thing, but just let's just have an honest conversation about who's making the rules here about how we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to prioritize, how we're supposed to treat ourselves and treat each other. And it's not always explicit, but implicitly what's living in the quote collective unconscious that's informing our decisions and our relationships with these things. And it is there. We live in a patriarchy. And so that's the thing that's sort of setting the tone. And what I realized in that exploration was that there's this dichotomy between what we, what we know is the masculine and feminine. And when I say masculine and feminine, I don't mean gender. Uh, I, I totally get that the language can be confusing, but it's not about the traits that we associate with men or women. It's about archetypal energy that is so universal. It lives in everybody. It lives in all humans since like the dawn of time. It's the reason like archetypes are the reason that we can watch like a Disney movie when we're four years old and understand the symbolism behind like the villain and the hero and the sidekick, like all of those characters that that play out, nobody literally told us what their roles are and how they interact with each other. But we come into the world with some information, kind of understanding very metaphorical things about energy and the right. things that we need in order to be in relationship with each other. And so, so, so go ahead. Like social conditioning, essentially, right? Um, totally. Yeah. The idea of what we are um, versus who we are as individuals. What we are is, I guess, kind of going back to male and female in terms of, you know, granted, I, you know, they're different perspectives, but in terms of biology, male and female, is just, you know, what, what we are and the history of what that was from when man first came into existence and hunter-gatherer and this, you know, that whole process throughout the years. I personally believe that it's conditioned into our genes and that's kind of why there's just the differences between, um, I guess, male and female and energy, as, as, as you say. Totally. Yes. I mean, we're absolutely conditioned to, if you're born a girl, you're supposed to like X, Y, and Z. You're supposed to dress X, Y, and Z. You're supposed to do all of these things. You're supposed to, I mean, I think like if you go into a toy store, you can see that because you see the, like the toys that are marketed for little girls and the toys that are marketed for little boys. Um, right. And that's just a, a microcosm of it. But those are the implicit messages that we're getting on top of what we're already sort of born into the world, not knowing that we know. And so the masculine feminine is sort of like a yin yang kind of thing. It's sort of like, let's say, for instance, like masculine traits that are positive are like structure and taking action and providing for yourself and for your family and protecting yourself and your family. And all of these things that are actually very, very positive. And those are the things that in our culture, we tend to celebrate more. I mean, there's a pressure that's put on that as well. I think if we take it back to gender, like when we look at that toy store example, as much as, you know, I think it's upsetting to me as a woman to look at the way we like sell baby dolls and like kitchen supplies to little girls. <laughs> as we're like, you know, hey, go play. But really, we're just training you to be a good housewife, right? Right. But for boys, we're also saying, like, get the military truck and the firefighter truck and, like, go save us, right? Go do the right, hard right. stuff, go into the danger and protect the rest of us, right? So, of course, there's so much social conditioning there um, that creates 
agony, I think, for some people, because maybe that's not who we really are or what we really want to be. Um, right. And that's kind of what we're seeing with um, a lot of, I guess, trans rights in terms of, you know, people speaking their truth and wanting to live their truth and realizing that, you know, they're uncomfortable or they, they have this innate, deep desire and feeling that they're not who they've been conditioned to be. Right. Right. Absolutely. And part of the then um, like social stigma that they face on top of it is this what seems to me to be very, very, very unconscious, although I think it's becoming more conscious. But there's a discomfort with folks who are not only saying one gender might not actually be a binary. It might not just be one or the other. There might be a spectrum, right? Which is so anti that sort of yang masculine thought of everything needs to be structured and we kind of need to know where everything starts and stops, which is the, the, the ideology that our culture runs on. So when you have somebody that comes out and says, well, I'm gender non-binary, the masculine conditioned culture is like, what? I don't even know what that means. I don't know what to do with that. And you're right. questioning every, or you're challenging everything I ever thought that I knew. And so now I'm angry with you because you're creating this discomfort for me. You're challenging the status quo as I have known it to be that I, that I myself have forced myself to comply with. And you get to just go say that you are something else. Like people get really upset about that, even though it's actually quite a beautiful thing to, to realize your, your true identity and to live by accordance with your own instincts rather than social expectations. That is a feminine thing. That is a beautiful thing. And that is a thing that a culture very dominant in its masculine is so uncomfortable with and afraid of. I like that perspective. I haven't really thought about it in terms of, I mean, you know, granted the, for, for me, a lot of the masculine feminine language that you use is just all new to me. Cause I've never really conceptualized or processed the, I guess the, the reality of the differences, you know, I have a, I guess a top surface understanding or perspective in this general ideas of what it means to be different. But in terms of, I guess, going deeper into uh, energy and behaviors and thought patterns, it's, it, it's new uh, groundbreaking territory, but for me, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to go back a bit to the um, grad school years. Did you have an aha moment where everything just kind of clicked and you realized that you had the eating disorder? Was it a steady process? That's a great question. Um, and we did. We got so far so fast. So let's go back. That's good. I like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did. You know, I had the aha moment wasn't so much, uh, oh, my God, I've had an eating disorder and I never noticed. It was oh my God, I think I've known for a couple of months that I had an eating disorder and I've been in complete denial about it the whole time. Right. So at some point that information infiltrated my mind and I just decided that I wanted to not acknowledge that it was there. And so the aha moment was me being like, you got to be honest with yourself because if you're not, first of all, I was going to school to become a therapist. And it's one of those things where it's like, if, you, if, if I can't be honest with myself and move through my stuff, then I cannot help anybody else do that themselves. So that was the, the the sort of challenge that I posed to myself. It was like, if this is the life that you want and this is the thing that you want to be doing, then you've got to do the work yourself. Um, and it was hard. It was hard to, to allow the admittance that I had an eating disorder into my life. 
and I didn't tell anybody about it. I felt very shameful about it. I think that's typically how we feel about whatever sort of addiction we might find ourselves facing. It just right. is such a shameful thing, right? You know, we've talked about it before. <laughs> right. I've talked about, um, I, again, I hate to use the word alcoholic, but you know, being, being an alcoholic and drinking excessively. And I feel like it's different. And I wanted to ask in terms of, you know, you saying you had shame and hiding an addiction. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, drinking is a group act where everyone partakes and it's okay and it's acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, I guess, through your experiences, been aware of groups of eat, like eating disorder groups? Do you mean like recovery groups? Not recovery groups. Um, I guess people, uh, people who just share in the addiction together or uh, maybe uh, I'm not sure how to word it exactly. Got it. Not necessarily support each other through the addiction, but yeah. Yeah. While you're still in the addiction and still kind of like not, not navigating it. Right. But you're aware of it and there are other people who are aware, aware of it and you support each other through, through the process. Yeah. And I guess accept it more so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't experience that from a, from a food perspective. For me, it was always okay. very, very, a very isolated experience. And, and it's interesting because, of course, we do eat with other people, right? And so what I would tend to do was if I was ever in a social, social situation where I was going to eat in front of people, I ate very, very little. And then when I would binge eat, would be at night completely by myself. So it was never shared with anybody else. Nobody else. I wasn't witnessing anybody else in theirs. Nobody was witnessing me in mine. It was all very secretive, which uh, perpetuates well, the shame, you know? Right, right. Because, yeah. you know, having your secret allows you to, you know, embrace it and I guess rationalize it. You know, there's no one to, as you said, shame you or put you down except for yourself if you're kind of in that mindset. But if you're okay with it, then, hey, you're going to be okay with it. So, yeah. Right. And that's what happens. I mean, when you, you, you tend to make allowances for things that maybe in a stronger frame of mind, you'd be like, no way do I want to do this to myself. I know what the harm of this is to my body and to my mind and all of these things, but you just, you, you, without anybody being able to witness me in it and call me out on it, or even say, Hey, I'm, I'm worried about you. Like, do you need help? It was like, no, I shut all of that out and nobody was ever able to see like the biggest truth about me. Have you ever had any moments where someone walked in on you or anyone was kind of uh, privy to the eating disorder and, and talked to you about it or you kept the secret well? I, I was a master at keeping the secret. <laughs> which, you know, shame is a hell of a drug and it will, I mean, it fuels us, to, it fuels me to do things that were just embarrassing just to even think that you could be capable of it. I think when I was younger, and I was living with my mom, I think she knew that I, I don't know that she thought that I was binge eating per se, but she knew that I was like messing around in the kitchen late at night, very quietly while she was asleep. And I think she, she would like ask me questions about it, but kind of more, not that she meant to shame me, but it was just, she, she had no idea that it was a sensitive thing. And so I think anytime she would ask me about it, it felt like I was being shamed. And so I just avoided it altogether. And then she just kind of stopped asking me. Yeah. So what was your thought process while you were writing your thesis? Um, Was it an emotional process? Was it, uh, I mean, I'm assuming it's very self-revealing and you had to like really dig deep into memories and thoughts and your history and your actions. So what was that process like for you? Yeah, 
it was, uh, God, it started out like a nightmare. I mean, <laughs> it was really like, and that's how I knew that I was on the right path because it hurt so damn much. And it was just so, um, I, I, you know, I was doing a lot of research once I was able to f my, find my topic, I could narrow down my research. And so I was finding very compassionate writings about people that struggle with eating disorders. And as I, as I was understanding the depths of it, I was able to be kinder to myself. And, and then I was able to kind of start slowly telling people kind of like one at a time, I would tell one friend and one friend, but the beginning of it was, I mean, I think I, I think I stopped writing my thesis about 10 times. I think it was like, nope, I'm going to change my topic. Nope, I'm going to go back. You know, nope, I'm going to change my topic. Nope, I'm going to go back. Um, cause that's, and, and it's really funny because, and I say this to clients who are struggling, if maybe they're using like the 12 steps to help them in whatever recovery that they have, it's like the first step is admitting that you have a problem. The thing is, is we think we're going to get to step one and then we're going to go right back to step two. But the truth is we're going to go to one and then we're going to back down to zero and then we're going to go to one right. and then zero right, and right. that's just the dance that we do. And that's okay. So long as you do eventually keep moving. Um, right. and then I feel like once the momentum picked up, and I started feeling a little bit more comfortable telling people because I was really outing myself. And I felt very vulnerable sharing meals with people that knew that I had an eating disorder because I felt like, oh my God, are they watching everything that I'm doing? And like, you know, this is just awful. But, but I was telling people that were very loving and supportive. And so I was able to kill a little bit of that shame because they met me in my vulnerability and they, and they loved me regardless of the thing that I felt was like the most horrible thing about me that I ever could have imagined. So that was, it became a beautiful thing. It, it definitely did. I mean, fast forward to everything you're doing now, you know, beauty comes from chaos, right? Mm -hmm. It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know um, what there is other than chaos. That's sort of a, a standard <laughs> place, you know? <laughs> the Live, Lift, Love podcast is sponsored by Reaching Toward Your Light, microdosing on life to self-heal from your three trauma triggers. A mental awareness and self-help memoir centered on healing from isolation, trauma, and limited ideologies sparked by personal, social, and spiritual trauma triggers. Learn more at reachingtowardyourlight.com. So was the post-writing the thesis or during the writing, the, while you were writing the thesis, was there the desire to, did you start the process for the steps or did it come later on in life? The, the, do you mean the 12 steps? Yeah, 12 steps. Sorry. I it's so funny cuz I had um I had previously done the 12 steps for something completely unrelated. It was this thing that I just sort of made up. I think this was the moment that I realized that I really needed to go to grad school to get my degree in psychology because I was such a nerd that I had done my 12 steps with no disrespect to the 12 steps with utter appreciation for the 12 steps about my what I sort of framed it was an addiction to apologizing. I was constantly apologizing to people, be it through like verbally apologizing or my behavior, which totally related to the eating disorder is this idea that like, I don't get to exist. My opinion doesn't matter. I can't take up space. I just sort of have to like be seen and not heard kind of thing. And so I was in this like a compulsive apologizing phase. And to break that habit, I did the 12 steps. And so I, I started the 12 steps with regard to my eating disorder, but I never finished them because the, the work that I was doing through my thesis ended up being more powerful to me 
than the 12 steps, if that makes that's, any sense. Yeah, it does. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm familiar with the 12 steps. I have a lot of respect for them, uh, but co completely made stuff up. <laughs> you know, it was just like, I'm addicted to apologizing. Let me do the 12 steps. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's, 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 it works universally, right? But Yes. Isn't one of the steps apologizing to people also? So how, yeah. how, does, how does that work? I turned it toward myself. I apologized okay. to myself for all of the times that I uh, sidestepped my own needs in order to meet others. So that was that, that was the person I had to make an amends with. <laughs> that's dope. That's, that's very, uh, very perceptive and yeah. a nice way to make it more personal. I like that. Fast forward to, I guess, maybe was it your first blog or... When, when did the, the Hungry Feminine make its first debut post your thesis? Yeah, uh, I think, oh gosh, it's such a great question. I don't even know if I remember. I think, yeah, it had to be. It had to be the blog. I probably took um, some important pieces from my thesis and maybe like rewrote them to be a little less academic and a little bit more digestible to the masses and started just posting it on thehungryfeminine.com. Um, and would just share it, you know, with, with people kind of locally. And then I just decided, I don't know why Instagram, because I think Instagram is actually the perfect platform, but at the time it just kind of felt like, isn't this just about pictures? Like, why am I sharing now this like deeper information and like writing, you know, posts and things like that. But then right. I started Instagram and that's when people started to really like reach out to me and be like, whoa, this is, this is important. I've needed to hear this. And like, I've, you know, all of, all of these people that I'd known for such a long time were now coming to me and saying, oh my God, I've struggled with food for the longest time. And, you know, people that I never talked about this with or, or knew that they were struggling with this were coming out and talking to me about it. And so I thought, oh my God, this is something important that people are just feeling a lot of relief to hear. So let me keep sharing it. And that was when I really you know, started adding in more features and started writing more and posting on Instagram more and trying to connect with people. And what's the what's the experience been like for you in terms of, you know, self branding and putting the focus on, you know, telling your story more and connecting with people? Yeah, I think for that, like telling my story has always been kind of tricky, because it's the thing that I want to do the most. I think that is why I ever became a writer in the first place. But also being a therapist, I felt like I had to kind of edit myself a lot because we're trained very much so not to self-disclose and not talk about ourselves. I mean, mostly that's in session with clients, of course, because like you're supposed to be there to talk about yourself, not listen to me. But we, there's also like this, this just sort of idea among psychotherapists that like we're supposed to, to some degree, remain these like mysterious blank slates of people. And so I was in a lot of conflict about do I share my story and really just live authentically? And the clients that relate to that are going to come and want to see me. And that's going to be a positive for both of us. Or do I follow along with the training and just sort of like be quiet? And I decided that <laughs> I think my inner New Yorker was like, no, you're not going to be quiet. You're going to open your right. mouth. <laughs> you're going to share your story. Because that's what this is about. We're supposed to be sharing stories. Absolutely. Um, it, was, it was hard. I was always a little doubtful whenever I would share a personal story but it always felt really good afterwards. And I always got really great responses from people. So I knew that it mattered. Did you feel vulnerable at all? Oh my Is God. This, yeah. Do you still feel vulnerable? <laughs> I still feel vulnerable. I always feel vulnerable. I mean, it's gotten better. Like I remember the first time I talked about my eating disorder, like I remember I could, I could almost transport myself there because it was so horrible. And I felt like flames were coming out of my mouth. Like 
it was such a visceral experience. And now I can talk about it like it's no big deal. But it's right. but there's still a degree of vulnerability there. There always is. And if if you're telling a story about yourself and you're not feeling vulnerable, then you're not really telling a story about yourself. Something's hiding. Unless you're a narcissist, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then it's okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess now would be a good time to kind of transition into the in more in depth into the masculine and feminine. So going back to what I said earlier, like, you know, I, I understand it on a very basic level yeah. or prior to listening to your podcast and going through your site and just, you know, hearing you speak and write content. I, I understood it on a very basic level in terms of, like I said, what we are versus who we are, what we are are these conditioned, I guess, binary uh, species who just kind of fall in line with what we're conditioned to due to history, um, genetics, and again, social conditioning. Mm-hmm. And I never really took the time to, I guess, really separate or look into the different layers, what it meant to be, um, I guess, masculine or feminine. And I feel like most people don't really even use masculine and feminine. Most of it is just male, female. I think th- those are easier words to use. And I think masculine and feminine is more, um, I guess, behavior or trait related versus male, female. I think that's the, maybe that's that's the major difference. Yeah. So for me, looking at masculine energy clichely it's being uh hyper aggressive it's being powerful it's being um in control it's leading and on the flip side the feminine energy again being conditioned is more softer more emotion filled I mean, yeah i feel like those are the i guess neg- i don't, I don't want to say negative traits because mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with being soft, right? right? There's nothing wrong with being um having emotions. You know, it it's important. But while while listening to your podcast, I started thinking about balance in terms of my life. And what one thing that really drew me to your podcast. So I actually initially, me me as a male, reading the name or the title, uh, The Hungry Feminine, mm-hmm. I automatically think the content isn't for me. Mm. Now, although I you know, I consider myself a, f- a feminist in the most basic sense of I believe in uh, fairness for all people, you know, regardless of anything. I believe in fairness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, reading Hungry Feminine, I, I think eh, it's, it's not for me, mm-hmm. but I know, number one, I know you, so I want to support you. So I'm going to listen. So listening to the episode and listen to the content and hearing you um like really dig deep into understanding masculine and feminine and understanding balance. It helped me understand myself a lot easier. Mm. And I think because I'm an objectivist, so that allows me to tap into both because it isn't about, since I have preconceived notions or since I'm conditioned to believe a certain way or live a certain way, then that's what I go with. For me, being an objectivist means that I just kind of focus on the matter at hand and whatever feels right to me or whatever makes sense to me allows me to react and respond. And mm-hmm. I think the 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 yin-yang balance of the masculine and the feminine is very innate in me. And I think that's what allows me to kind of, um, I guess, be more open and be perceptive and be responsive. You know, I, I grew up with, for the most part, my mother and my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was around, but he wasn't actively involved in raising me and being there for me. So while listening to your, to your to your episode and your podcast, I thought about that and I thought, you know, maybe having all that feminine energy growing up is what allowed me to kind of be a fair, just person mm. because I still have my 
my innate masculine energy of, like I said, power and energy and hypermasculinity and all these other things. But there's this um, worldly awareness that allows me to kind of step back. And for me, that comes from the feminine aspect and the feminine traits and being around my mother and just seeing her interact and exist. And, you know, granted, my mother is a very, I think she's kind of tapped into her masculine <laughs> a lot. <laughs> also, like, you know, she's very headstrong. Like, she's a leader. She's a go-getter. She's like, I mean, she, she's, you know, she's an inspiration for me in terms of living the American dream and like getting things done and living a, a great life and being assertive and all, all the things that I guess matter to me in life now in terms of the people I interact with and the people I have, I communicate with and the people I want in my life. So it, it, it was humbling, I'd say, to start um, mm-hmm. to kind of, number one, give credit where credit is due. I, th- I think it's important to not deny that there is, there is a need to balance. There is a need to tap into the right energy at the right time. So when I was I was listening to your first episode and you said something that this stood out to me because it was a, a beautiful concept. You were talking about the masculine and feminine energy and you said, when one is in power too long, the light or good qualities fade away and it's dark shadow qualities start to show up. Mm-hmm. So could you uh, get into that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. The Live, Lift, Love podcast is sponsored by the Black Excellence Shop. Shop our Black Excellence calendar journal and bundle at blackexcellencedaily.com. And download the Black Excellence Daily app for Android and iOS. Learn, journal, inspire. BlackExcellenceDaily.com. God, and there were so so much so many questions that I had to what you were saying. But I guess <laughs> we'll just keep it moving because I'm not your therapist. Um, not that I want well, to you, therapize you, you, but I was just you you, you, you can you can it's fine. <laughs> well, so I guess my question, like your mom, um, I mean, she she probably had to take on a, a very masculine, like really exert her masculine traits for survival, which I feel like is a lot of what ends up happening for people. And I don't mean survival necessarily like crisis mode, but just like, how do I take care of my family? How do I make sure that everybody's needs are met in a world that is very driven by capitalism and action and productivity and doing all of these things? So she probably really had to do that in order to keep up. But was she nurturing with you? Like, did you also feel a feminine side from her? Uh this is a very great question because I'm very much aware and trying to understand my um emotion my emotional staleness. Oh my <laughs> um, god, I love that. <laughs> and it's I mean it's always been an issue, but again, this is just me off of memory. I think back to my childhood. I feel like I had an amazing childhood in terms of everything preteen was just great. I was loved, lots of love and affection. But once I hit my teenage years, right, mm. and again, I, th- I think this kind of ties in with the masculine, feminine aspect. You know, the, the general saying that uh, a woman can't raise a man, mm. and I don't want to say I believe in that a hundred percent, but I do think there are limitations in what a man can teach a young girl and what a woman can teach a young boy. I think yeah. that's a reality. Yeah. So for me, becoming a teenager, and you know hormones, puberty, and, you know, you know, all that, all that stuff, all this energy and all this awareness is coming out. Mm-hmm. Me and my mom's had a, me and my, my mother rather, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I can say moms, you know, I'm, yeah. uh, it's, it's comfortable. Me and my mom's had a, a, a huge, uh, it started a transition of our, of our falling out. 
because I guess me being, this is a, a, again, a new thought as it's, as we're having this conversation, I guess me being more in tuned with masculine and feminine and having that maybe innately in me since I was younger. Um, I mean, I feel like I've always kind of been an objectivist and I've always been fair growing up. I started to see her biases or her unfair ways. And granted, I understand that she's a parent um, and, you know, there's a need for it, but I couldn't, I wouldn't accept it. it certain things were, were just weren't, weren't right. For me, right is right. Um, you know, we, we started communicating less. We were always at, at, uh, at ends and you know, arguing a lot. Mm. And it started the transition of, you know, me feeling, I guess, kind of alone or like the black sheep of my family. Because again, it's, you know, again, it's mostly just my mother and my sister. And again, my father wasn't as active as I wanted or he could be. I don't, I don't know what the exact wording would be. Mm. But, you know, being a, a male, a, a growing male and having this desire to have male conversations. And I'll also add that I grew up watching TV a lot. So mm -hmm. seeing these, like watching Family Matters, watching the Cosby show and seeing these family structures, I longed for that a lot growing up. And I started being resentful and angry at whatever, what our situation was. Uh, I mentioned in, I believe, episode three that my biological father passed when I was like two. Mm -hmm. So not having the ability to meet him and hearing negative things about him for the majority of my life, that added on to my anger and frustration. Yeah. So, you know, going through all this chaos, you know, being a teen, having this awareness, starting to claim my identity and starting to live my truth and who I wanted to be, mm -hmm. I just realized that it doesn't work realistically. Mm -hmm. There's just too much differences between too, too many differences between my mother and I that the, the relationship couldn't be what I wanted it to be. Yeah. Um, and even to this day, you, you know, it's still kind of like that. And these past eight years, I've been moving in and out of New York. You know, I lived in Miami, went to Argentina, lived in LA, uh, went down to Virginia to stay with my sister. And now I'm in Denver. And whenever I go back home, it's like things have never changed. It's, it's the mm -hmm. same tension, same arguments, same conversations. Mm -hmm. And just my general feeling of not being heard and not being, um, I guess, valued. Yeah. And I, I understand the reason for it. You know, my mother, my mother's an immigrant, mm -hmm. so she has different values. She has different perspectives. Growing up, I wanted to be a dentist. Right? I went to Bridgeport for dental hygiene school. Mm -hmm. So once I graduated and transitioned into doing sociology as a major, you know, she didn't, she got it, but she didn't really get it because being a dentist is more prestigious. It's something to talk about. Being a, you know, I, I, I try to explain like being a psychologist to her because that, that was something I wanted to do at a point. And I'm like, oh, you know, I just talk, I, my, my basic definition was I, I just talk to people and they tell me about their problems <laughs> and I help them. And she was like, eh, okay. <laughs> she was, wasn't, wasn't that interested. Right. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, over, over the years, we, whenever I'm not home, we get, we get along because we're not in each other's spaces. There's nothing to fight and argue about. But the minute, like I went back home for a week earlier, like maybe two weeks ago, and this tension, like it's just bound to happen. It's just always going to mm -hmm. be there. Mm -hmm. So as I get older, I see, and for me, it's unfortunate, fortunate and, un and unfortunate. I see some of the traits 
that she that I dislike about her becoming a part of me. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why I've kind of been on this mental focus of like, how do I become <laughs> different? How do I find more emotion <laughs> to exert through life? Yeah, yeah. It's bound to happen. We're bound to see right. the parents in us at one point. And we have those oh shit moments of like, no. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like it was tough for her. Where, where is she from? She's from Haiti, right? Yeah, she's from Haiti. Yeah. So, so there's, there's probably, I mean, just probably being an immigrant alone, trying to assimilate to this culture, which is so different from the Haitian culture here in America, right? It's like she, and I think that goes back to like my point earlier about like survival for her, like. That was, she probably needed to be that way, not only because of how she was raised and the values that she got from her family, but then trying to come here and like, like make space for her family in this country that I'm sure was not an easy thing to do. But, but in that, you know, and I think that this is what ends up happening is that when the, when the masculine takes over so much, it's comforting because it's predictable, it's structured. We know that A plus B equals C. There's no room for confusion there. The feminine is very confusing. It's very much that chaotic of like, I don't know how to measure this. I don't know how to, you know, guarantee that I'm getting success from this because it's it's more about the feeling and the sensation and the unconsciousness of it. And so that was probably like an unsafe place to, for her to go. But for you, the impact was you weren't seen and you weren't, you know, your values weren't able to be met or appreciated by, by her. And so that, that created a divide between you, which, which makes sense. And it sounds like you followed your instincts to just handle the relationship the best way that you could handle it. Right. And a a new thought that uh, came to me probably maybe last month, kind of tying into um, masculine energy, you know, having her husband murdered, right? Like, again, like, like you were saying, you have to, like really put yourself out there. You have to assert yourself. You have to take charge and be the, you have to provide the balance that your children need to let them know that they're comforted, comforted rather, and that the security in life, because again, that's the traditional conditioned male role. So yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean the, so, so, okay. So this, I don't want to forget the question that you asked me. I think this is actually a good time to, to answer it because the question that you'd asked me was the quote about how like if if one if, if masculine or feminine is dominant for too long, then it's it's positive or light traits goes away and the darkness, the shadow comes up. And I right. think this is what we see. We can probably see this um with individual people in our lives and maybe even ourselves. But I think one of the easiest ways to look at it is to look at it from like an American culture perspective, because especially right now, with like the way politics are and all of these things, it's almost cartoonish the way the masculine has dominated and completely repressed the feminine. So if you look at like positive traits of the masculine, which, which we've named, and I think we're, we're like clearing up what that all is, whether or not it, it directly relates to gender. I think the way that it relates to gender is what you were saying, that social conditioning, but it's not the only way women can have masculines that are dominant. Men can have feminines that are dominant. Um, And then the socialization happens on top of it, but the masculine traits of or the, the positive traits of the masculine are protection and provision and acquisition and structure and taking action, right? And you you even said before when you were talking about the feminine, like it was hard for you to not feel like the way that you were describing the feminine was inherently negative. And, and that's the way that our culture kind of looks at the feminine, which is if you are more emotional, if you are 
more concerned with like nurturance and connecting with people and being creative and using your imagination. And, you know, you're more kind of like inward instead of outward. And you're more concerned about like just being and maybe meditating or just taking a nature walk rather than like getting the job done. Those are all things that I love doing. <laughs> right, right. Culturally, they're seen as negative. It's like it's right. lackful, it's weak. Oh, you're you're being creative. What you don't have anything better to do? Like we have so many attacks that we place upon the the positive feminine. And so what that does is it feeds into that masculine, and the masculine gets more and more powerful and bigger, and nothing's checking it. Nothing is saying, hey, wait, yes. Protection is good, but so is nurturing the people that we're with and ourselves. It's not just about using force and aggression to protect us, but it's also to feed us and connect and love on people and and not, you know, like be open to different sort of careers that maybe don't sound right, but maybe are actually very fulfilling to a person, right? And so the masculine grows and then it and then its shadow starts to come into play. And then aggression and theft start to come in, then greed and war start to come in. And I think we're looking at, um, you know, this sea of old white men who have been like running the country for a while and are just sort of archetypally like the epitome of that. And they're just kind of saying like, no, gender is a binary, end of discussion. No, America is supposed to be white, end of discussion. Like, all of these right. things are just sort of like, we're not going to have the conversation. And if you keep having the conversation, we're going to go to war with you. We're going to fight. We're going to use our violence to assert our, our power over you. There's no room in there for the feminine at all. It's not safe for the feminine. So that's why a lot of times we repress our own feminine because I, I know I, I carry this around me when I worked in corporate America. Which quick, is, when, when you say we, do you mean universally we? Yes. I mean, I think okay. there's like, it, yes, I say universally we, I think, there are some people that maybe there are exceptions to this um, for, but I say, I was just actually having a conversation with a guy the other day who felt like I was excluding him from the conversation. I said, no, you're involved in the conversation. Every man, um, I always say with the hungry feminine, like this is not some sort of diatribe to like take men down. That is right. not what this is whatsoever. The fact is, and I have a blog post on the hungry about how repressing the feminine hurts men too. Because whether or not the feminine is your dominant, you still have feminine traits within you. And if you go out into the world and the world tells you that those feminine traits are bad or laughable or sinful or weak, you're going to hide them. You're going to push them down and you're going to say, well, clearly this is, this is dangerous for me because I'm going to be reje rejected for it. Um, so, then, so then individually, we all cultivate our own masculine to allow us to keep making money and allow us to kind of keep going on with the status quo of the culture that we've built to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, right. um, that we forget about our own instincts and our own need to just like connect to community and nature and just like relax a little bit and not always have to work 80 hours a, a week and like, you know, be super productive and all of these things. You know what I mean? So just to be fair, I, I, I want to hear some of the dark qualities of the feminine since yes. we did the, the right. masculine already. You got to be right. fair. You're totally, right. <laughs> You're totally right. And I actually love talking about the shadow of the feminine because boy, oh boy, is it wicked. I will say that like, <laughs> did you ever see, um, I don't know if you watched the show. What was it called? Sharp Objects. It was on HBO. No. Okay. So. If you ever see it, that is sort of like one of the most twisted evil versions of 
the the uh, feminine shadow because the, the the masculine shadow will just come up and punch you in the face and you know that you got hurt and you could deal with that and figure out what you need to do with that with that black and blue but the feminine shadow you're not going to see that coming you are it's going to sort of like get in you and sort of twist you up a little bit so those are traits like um codependence where there's like no boundary in a relationship it's just sort of like one person's kind of feeding off of the other there's a lot of judgment and passive aggression. There's a need for control. There's perfectionism. There's uh, resignation, this sort of idea of like, well, fine, if you're not going to give me the thing that I want, then forget it, right? And it's just sort of like, whoa, that's not what I meant. You know what I mean? I feel like you've, you've probably experienced that like in relationships with people. I certainly have had that experience with like my grandmother before. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, what do you want? I don't understand. Just be clear about what it is. So we see those two where there's just a lot of sort of like the, the passive aggressive and the resignation shows that the feminine shadow doesn't know how to defend itself. Whereas like the masculine shadow is all about, yes, I'm going to go defend, I'm going to create war. The feminine shadow goes so inward and it can become so toxic because then it, it bleeds out into relationships. And if you're in a codependent relationship with somebody who's like very extremely in their feminine shadow, you're going to have those moments where you just feel very um, overwhelmed by them, smothered by them. And it's going to be confusing because you're like, but you're loving me. So how is this a bad thing? Well, because love without boundaries can actually be quite poisonous. And so that's where like the sharp objects things comes into play. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but um, that's just like a really great portrayal of the feminine shadow. So would you, I guess, saying to me, saying that love without boundaries is dangerous. Um, would you say that unconditional love isn't a reality? Well, that's interesting. I feel like unconditional love is it's interesting let me talk this out because I feel like it's a little bit different than having boundaries I feel like with boundaries it's saying like I love you but we are two separate people still just because we love each other doesn't mean we've become one and so I still have values and you still have values I still have needs and you still have needs and so it just creates a little bit of a barrier so that there there isn't some confusion that we have now molded into the same soul and body um with conditions, I feel like that can be more about, well, it, it can certainly be used for manipulation. And I can actually hear the the feminine shadow kind of using conditions as a way to sort of say like, do this or else I'm going to retract my love from you. So that that's sort of a way of using it as punishment. If that makes any sense. That does. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like they might be a little bit different. Like we can love, I feel like I can love somebody unconditionally which means they don't have to earn my love, but I can still create a boundary which says you're still your own person and I'm still my own person. Okay, I get that. Yeah. So what was your evolution in terms of understanding this energy or realizing it? Like for me, like I said, listening to you talk about it is what helped me really understand energy and past experiences and you know allows me to kind of be present and aware of how I interact and communicate presently. What was your, what, what, what moments or what were the situations that allowed you to be aware and kind of define the masculine and the feminine? Yeah, I think um, a lot of the research that I felt really privileged to do while I was writing my thesis gave me at least some language and some context in which to understand a lot of this. I was reading a lot of like Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, 
um, Marion Woodman, all like, again, old white people that sort of like set the foundation for psychology as we know it, um, which is a whole other conversation. But they, they, they wrote poetry about psychology, which was really what drew me to it. And so it gave me the language for it, which was helpful. But I think the, the embodiment of that, the integration of that for me came when I just realized at some point how much I was suffering and how much that suffering was working itself through my eating disorder. And I know, <laughs> I know for a fact that I am so dominant in my feminine that I am like all emotions all the time. Like my <laughs> logic, my logic tries. I give him a lot of credit, but it's just can't break through that emotion sometimes, right? So I know that that's my weakness. It's also my strength. And I think the moment that I realized that I live in a culture that has been trying to take away that power, I think, for so long, that all of the things that I valued most about myself, which were very feminine, were shut down by jobs, by family members, by friends, by ex-boyfriends, by people that just didn't know what to do with it. And so I shut it down and I became ashamed of it. And so once right. I realized that that happened, I took it back and I said, no, this is my power. And if I can claim it as my power, maybe that I can also claim the power of the masculine so that I don't feel like I'm fighting it. I don't feel like I have to degrade my own masculine in order to like fight back the system that's just telling me to be all masculine all the time. And I'm like, no, I'm going to be all feminine all the time. And I thought, what if I didn't have to be all of one or the other all the time? And I could actually be a little bit of both. And when I started to look into how I could balance those energies, the suffering that I was experiencing, that I was experiencing started to lessen. And I started to feel like I had more clarity and I was more in control. And I thought, oh my God, there really is something to this. It really is just that simple of naming it. And what were some of the things you started doing to like, how, how do you process You're like you're in a moment, right? You're just existing in a moment. So, something catches you off guard or triggers you. How do you go through that transition of balancing, I guess, which, which reaction or which, which would be the general term for masculine and feminine, I guess, which energy to yeah. kind of delve into? Yeah. How, how do you process that? Yeah. So, so knowing myself and knowing that my default is feminine, it's like 99.9% .9 of the time, whenever something happens and I'm a little dysregulated or I need to like solve a problem, I know that I've gone into my feminine. Like I've hyper gone into my feminine. And like there's just, that's where I hide. That's fine. I totally get it. Right. <laughs> knowing that is the key, accepting that and, and, and being totally fine with that and not judging myself for that is the key because then I can have sort of like real talk with myself in the moment where I will always pause. I, I mean, it took me a while to like build up that muscle memory to not be super reactive in a moment, but to just stop for a minute and take a breath and say, okay, like I will talk to my feminine. I will say, okay, feminine, you are running amok right now. And that is not helping the situation at all. So I will call on my masculine and personifying them. I probably sound crazy because I'm like talking to the energies within me, but like personifying them actually helps a lot because right. it brings them both into the moment and then they can have a conversation with each other. And then so I can say, masculine, I need you to come in here and apply some logic to the situation. We need some help containing all of the emotion that's coming up because I can't make a clear decision 
if, if all I'm doing is like emoting just like bananas all over the place. So I start to think, okay, I'm going to get organized about my thoughts. I'm going to start to look for how do I identify the problem so that I can start maybe searching for solutions. Maybe I'm going to ask for help because I know that if I stay in this by myself, I might spiral and I might only have my one perspective. So I'm going to get really trapped in the weeds here and not be able to move forward. So I start to call on all of these little exercises to help ignite my masculine so that at least even though the feminine is still going to probably be driving the car, at least he's the co-pilot and putting the GPS on and like trying to make sure that we're going in the right direction. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about personifying and talking to your feminine and masculine, I thought about old TV shows where they, they, they would have the devil and the angel on each shoulder. <laughs> and that's that's kind of what it, what it is essentially, right? The, like the, the devil would be the masculine <laughs> telling you just, you know, do whatever you want. It's, you know, the world is yours for the taking. And the angel is your feminine telling you, you know, do what's right. Do what's, do what's good. Follow your heart. That's so funny. I love that. I love that. And I would even say that like neither one of them has to be like good or bad. But yeah, they are just sort of, they have very different perspectives on things. So my, my, I mean, I feel like I had this experience with something as simple as like, I got a flat tire and immediately my feminine went into like, oh my God, how could this happen? What am I going to do? It went into like, how did, how did this, how do like, I wish that I could go back and make this never happen. Like, and my masculine's like, that's not going to help in the situation right now. You know what I mean? So like, let's start thinking logically about who you need to call or what you need to do to prop the thing up. And like, it's okay that you're upset. But don't just act from upsetness because then you stay stuck there and nothing ever gets better. So yeah, allowing both of those kind of narratives and, and, and pieces of advice into the picture. I also drew my masculine and feminine, which was just sort of a weird exercise where like I came out of a dream and I thought, oh, I'm going to draw them. And that really helped personify them for me because I know now when they're having a conversation with each other, I know what they look like, which helps really support this. Have you shared that photo? I have. Are they, are, are, are they on the Hungry Feminine it is, website? Yeah. It's on the Hungry Feminine okay. um, blog. Yeah. That's cool. I'm, I'm going to check it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're lovely. And once I met them I, and like drew them, I like learned so much about them. And I was like, oh, this is, these are my two guys. All right. This is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> You get like print printouts and make like little dolls out of them so they can <laughs> like truly manifest and exist in a 3D world because they're, they're real, as real as you, right? I wish I should do that. But what I think is actually interesting is I feel like there's there's a possibility for them to evolve because when I when I originally drew my masculine with that newfound acceptance that my feminine has just been like completely dominating for so long, my my poor masculine just looks so defeated. And like, so sad. And I was like, oh, I got to really build this guy up a little bit. Maybe he'll respond a little faster when a crisis happens. <laughs> so when you were talking about, like you used the, the car, for example, and uh, the flat tire, mm-hmm. and I guess just emoting and, and kind of reacting to the situation. Yeah. I think as, you know, as a, as a male, as a dominant masculine, you know, my, my, my mind also goes into rather not also my mind goes into solution i'm mm-hmm. I'm very solution based soon as something happens like i don't worry i just like you know how can i solve this and being aware that the the feminine and i, I don't want to say react in an, i don't mean it in a negative sense i hope it doesn't come off as being negative but you know being more inclined to i guess worry or mm-hmm. 
uh, process the situation. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm aware that, so like, I, I guess more so I'm trying to say there's an awareness. So like, I'll use my mother, for example, something happens, she worries, she complains, and I'm just sitting there like, okay, well, like, what's the solution? Right. And I get upset at the complaining versus finding a way to, to be active. And maybe if I'm, if I was more in tuned or more receptive and more, if I, and if I acknowledged my feminine more in that moment, maybe I'd be more inclined to say, you know, she's just tapping into her feminine. It's okay. Yes. But I, you know, I get, I, I get upset and I'm like, you know, like, let, let, let's just solve it. Like, what's the, like, let's just solve it. Let's not worry. Let's not get riled up. Let's just figure out the solution. Right. Yes, that is it right there. And I'm so glad that you said that. And I I do couples therapy a lot of the time. And so a lot of time I see that in the argument is like, there's a time and a place for both things. And if we just accepted both in ourselves, in our partner, even if we don't, or whoever it is that we're talking to, even if we don't understand it entirely, and we don't like it, we don't agree with it. The truth is, is that we are all humans that have emotions. And for some of us, they they come out a little bit more regularly and frequently than for other people. And that's okay. If we took a beat to acknowledge that, again, in ourselves and in other people, and just sort of validated that for a second, the feelings would calm down a lot more. They wouldn't feel so desperate to like run the show because when you, it's like a kid that's like having a temper tantrum. If you just sort of look at the kid and say, I see that you're upset. And I understand that you want this thing. It's like, maybe they still can't have the thing, but just sort of naming that they're a, a person in the room with feelings and desires, it gets them to engage with you a little bit more than if you were just screaming at them and telling them to like, get over it, right? Right. So that moment of just, yes, there are feelings here. Maybe they're not mine and maybe I don't understand them, but let's, let's, let me validate the feelings, give them a second to breathe and then say, okay, but how long are we going to sit in these feelings? Maybe it's time to use this emotion to put us into action and let's figure out a solution, right? Oftentimes for me, so long as I validate my feelings and I let my feminine know that I've heard her, she'll, she'll move out of the way so that the masculine can come in and start making decisions. Like I talk about self-awareness a lot and I feel like that that is one of the most important things, especially when it comes to tapping into your masculine and feminine um because yeah. without like it, it's it's very much layered and you know you saying that you've personified them and you have conversations with them that's like uh or rather me saying you should you know make uh dolls out of them that's you know third tier right like it's you're, you're evolving the the reality and the awareness of them and having them you know whether it's a physical space or whether it's a mental space in your head it keeps you in the moment and allows you to, I guess, be honest. And, you know, I did an episode last week on authenticity, it allows you to be authentic, authentic and allows you to be real about who you are and what you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and accept who you are and what you want instead of feeling like you've got to resist it all the live long day. I feel like that for me, because my feminine was so powerful for me, but so weak to the culture I spent so many years resisting the strength of my feminine and therefore who I am as a person. And that makes us mean, that makes us harmful to other people, that makes us get really angry with other people really quickly because without our connection to ourselves and just sort of accepting 
ourselves for better or worse or or using that information to take uh, ownership when our feelings come up or have accountability for ourselves. We just start blaming other people when stuff gets weird. And that's that was like something that I was like, I can't do that anymore. I don't want to project that onto other people anymore. I'd rather just sort of face the hard truth of myself. And now I proudly carry it around with myself, with myself, you know, I'm just sort of like, Hey man, I am who I am. You know, I got right. here for a reason. Uh, it's worked so far. I'll, I'll always have room to improve, but I'm not going to fight myself anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to be aware and I'm going to be mindful and I'm going to own my stuff when it comes up. So what does a world look like to you that where everyone has the awareness of masculine and feminine and taps into it at the, at the right time? Or not even that. I guess that they're just aware of it. They don't reject it. What what does that world look like to you? That world to me looks a lot more accepting of things that otherwise make it uncomfortable. And so that's a world where people in marginalized communities are no longer marginalized. That's where people are no longer fighting over every little thing from like, you know, like major wars that we have to like parking spots where people are just sort of like losing their mind over people or over like losing a parking spot. Um, I had somebody screaming at me in the car the other day and the, the degree, first of all, I don't even know what they were upset about, but the degree to which they were screaming at me showed me like, that's not about me. That's about you. Like you're unhappy with something right. in your life. And that really sucks. So a world where we're aware of that is a world where we can kind of say like, wow, I'm really angry right now. And I, and I like, I accept that. And I'm not going to make that somebody else's problem. I'm not going to create enemies out of immigrants or out of Muslims or out of the LGBTQ community, or, you know, I'm, I'm it's, it's a world where we don't have enemies. It's a world where we don't categorize people as sort of this us versus them, uh, and we need to annihilate the them in order to survive because we're all just owning our stuff and we're nurturing ourselves and we're having fun and we're using our imagination and we're paying more attention to nature and not selling out the earth in order to advance technology. Um, it's not to say technology is bad and that technology would come to a screeching halt. It just means that we can prioritize empathy for other people and the safety of our planet while also trying to advance as a human race. Uh, so I don't know that it could ever exist, but that's the world that I dream of. <laughs> right. And, and that's the work, that's the work you, you do to look forward to, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And, it, and it just feels better. Like I know for myself, like even if the reach of the work that I do, you know, stalls out at some point or it doesn't impact a lot of people, I know the impact that it had on me. I know that my own personal suffering was able to be managed so sweetly and so tenderly with this work that I did. And if I can support other people in at least taking care of themselves that way, then that's a gift because it might not have global implications, but it will have community implications. It will have, you know, societal implications on a smaller level. And that's huge. Are you aware of any, um, I guess, societies, maybe remote or secluded that I mean, I feel like it's difficult to be aware of this, but I guess maybe they share responsibilities or there's this an awareness of masculine and feminine and you can kind of see it through how they interact or, um, I guess, engage in the community. From what I uh, can see, is it, wait, let me just look up really quickly because I think it's Sweden. Do you know if that's where they just um, elected that female prime minister? 
I'm kind of thinking. I'm not sure off the top of my head. Okay. So this is a terrible answer, but um, Finland, maybe it's Finland. Uh, What I see in their politics is that they make space for feminine traits. And what I mean by that is like, say for instance, and I think in America, we're trying to get better about it, but it's, there's a lot of like force that we're up against. Um, capitalism runs America. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but it is a right. very masculine thing. And it's abs- it's in our politics. Like it, it runs our, our culture here. And within it, there is not a lot of space for like parenting, for, for like, for example. So um, mothers or fathers that just have a baby and they're struggling to get time off to like go home and, and, and bond with the baby and spend time with the baby. Um, even the way we see breastfeeding, which is like, it's an offensive thing to just like for a woman to, to feed her baby and like offices are like having a hard time making policies for that to be acceptable in, in that to me is an example of how we're struggling with the feminine. Whereas in this, I think it's Finland, um, in their government, they totally make space for that. They're totally like, no, you just had a kid. Like, yes, money is important, but also, you know, nurturing our young and making sure our children grow up well attached and well-developed is more important. So go home and spend time with your kids and like tend to your family. Right. To me, that's the best modern example of how that could look where, where the values of both masculine and feminine are, are equally portrayed in politics. Absolutely. I mean, it ties into how, again, how we are in America. We're not, you know, parents aren't present, you know, television, like I said, or raised television is raising our children. Social media is raising our children in a, in a modern age, and parents are the unfortunate parents. You know, you know, we have the one percenters or ten percenters who make adequate money, who can you know, send their kids to private schools and give their children everything they want, right. and don't need to work excessive jobs. But for the lower income people, you know, parents are working multiple jobs. They're not there to be present. They're not there to you know help their kids with homework after school. I mean, I, I remember my mother even be, being an immigrant. She she helped me out with homework while I was when I was in elementary school. You know, you, I don't think you get that as much anymore because of the the negative aspects of what capitalism has become, or I guess, I guess has always been in this country. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's and it's getting harder to keep up. I mean, things are getting so much more expensive, and income is not catching up with that, and all of these things. So. There are households where both parents now have to work where maybe in the past that wasn't the case. And there's so much great there in terms of opportunity for women and mothers to be able to have careers, but some don't want to, and they have to, because in order to keep the roof over the head, this is what's required. And so the kid has to stay in daycare or have somebody else take after them or, or, or sort of babysit themselves in some way. Um, So again, that's, that's about the, the priorities that, it's not, you know, we're not bad for wanting and needing money. That's the, that's the currency that we need in order to survive in the world. But it's become such a labor of survival because it's so hard to, to live these days um, that, yeah, it's, it's wild that like nurturing your kids, like spending quality time with your kid, doing homework with them and all of these things, that becomes a thing that's deprioritized. Right. It, I mean, realistically, it's only getting worse because of, again, social media and just this options, you know, too, too many, too many options, um, which is a good thing in some aspect, but there isn't balance, you know, going back to balance and balance and masculine and feminine, it should be a balance of 
outside influences and parental and familial influences. There should be a balance between educating yourself and focusing on your own life and your own individuality and Mm -hmm. being obsessed with your Instagram feed or celebrities and what they're doing or the timeline on Twitter. We're not, we're not balancing. Um, I posted a quote from your podcast from um, episode 10, I believe. Mm-hmm. I just I just want to read it real quick because it was it was it was it was dope to me. Okay. Um, let me see. So you wrote uh, addiction is as human as it gets, especially these days where we are so fundamentally dis- disconnected from each other in the ways that matter the most. We're aching. We're aching in an age of anxiety, an age of depression, an age of discomfort, an age of distraction, and responsively, an age of instant gratification. An age of fear for our future. We all turn to something to comfort us through this chaos. And the less aware we are, the more compulsively we do it. And the more we ignore the consequences of it, the more we wiggle up the spectrum of addiction. Mm-hmm. And that's perspective. That's the, that's the reality. We're, we're all, not we're all, we're being conditioned to be addicted to all these endless options, right? You're addicted to all these streaming services, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I talked about, Disney, you know, when Disney Plus came out and just the reality of like literally every Disney movie that ever, ever came out is at your disposal. Mm-hmm. And it's like, like for, like, for what <laughs> you, you don't, you don't need it. Like it, it's great to have options. It's great to have the freedom, but realistically it's, it's not real freedom. It's conditioned freedom because again, it's, it's Disney's set um, programming that they want you to view. And then, you know, capitalism allows you to uh, go to Netflix and go to Hulu and CBS and NBC and, that, and every company is doing it now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the flip side on, I guess, TV programming, but, you know, people are watching TV on their phones, but then when you go to social media, the Snapchat is Instagram, there's mm-hmm. Facebook, there's TikTok. And there's always something new. There's always some new contraption of an app looking to keep you engaged and on your screen. And that's, the, these are the new addictions, you know, and, like I, I'm not sure if I mean maybe you would know better if the the rise or the awareness of mental health is due to social media and more people speaking out, or is it actually that the numbers are increasing because we are becoming sicker mentally? Yeah, it's a good question that I've I've I ask myself constantly, especially when I see so many young clients in session who are experiencing like severe depression and anxiety, and I'm just sort of like. Where is this coming from? Not to say that I wasn't depressed when I was 13. I think that was around the time that I started to experience depression myself. Um, so it's it's not completely, I, I think there is some degree of like exposure. We're seeing it now in a way that we never saw it before, which is normalizing the conversation, which then brings more people into the conversation. Um, but But I think it would be a mistake to say that it's one or the other, because if we look at the way that we are you know, social media, I think even TV and all the streaming services that you were talking about, it creates an illusion of connection. I I noticed I went through a, a very strange period of time where I was watching Jesus and Mero on Showtime. I was watching it like <laughs> nonstop. I watched every episode like four times. And I was like, why do I keep watching? I've seen this episode. Why do I keep watching it? And then I thought, Oh my God, there's some part of me that thinks they're my friends. You know what I mean? Like, right, right, they're, right. They're, especially their format of show because they're just sort of goofing off and doing whatever they're doing. But like, some part of me felt 
connected to them because they're just these two guys making jokes and laughing and being silly. And I can connect with them through my TV screen, but I'm not actually connecting to anybody. It's not a fulfilling mutual relationship, right? So I think we experience that on Twitter. I think we experience that on YouTube, on all sorts of things where we feel like, you know, as human beings, we are social. So we want to connect to things, but we're not actually connecting to people. We're connecting to the illusions. And so we're still suffering. And then we go and engage in whatever addiction we're engaged in because it's so goddamn uncomfortable to right. need to connect to somebody and not know how to do it in real life. The delusion of inclusion. Yes. And what you consider that you know social media allows us to connect with you know literally anyone on the planet who has a device mm-hmm. so there are, are let's say let's say 7 billion people you can possibly connect with mm-hmm. and i mean and i'll use myself as an, as an example you know i create content and i put the content out and you always want more i always want more numbers i always want more conversions i always want more page views yeah. Because there's so there's so much possibility, and there's there's a two two layer um, emotion to that. There's the innate initial feeling of you know it's not as good as it could be because more people aren't connecting with it. Mm. And then the next step, the the rationalizing aspect, I guess, or, or the, the the masculine energy aspect of it is, I, I just need to do more. Like, how how do I get this in front of more people? It's not that like. It exists, sure, but who who's gonna think to Google Live Left Love Podcast? Like it's not it's not realistic. I have a personal responsibility to do the work, the consistent work rather, to get my content out there and connect with people. Mm-hmm. But I think not enough people get again, going back to the masculine and feminine, they're just not getting enough likes on a picture, right? Like you post an Instagram picture and let's say you have a thousand followers and you only get thirty likes. I think people, you know, you feel you feel a type of way about that. You feel rejected. Social media is conditions people to, I think, have this constant uh, fear or awareness of rejection because the the response or the reaction or the acknowledgement of what you of the content you you posted isn't what you want it to be or isn't what you expect it to be. So. Yeah, I definitely see it. Yeah, making people depressed or sad or feeling like they're not part of, um, I guess the a, a community or a full community. Yeah, and think about. I mean, that's it's such a great point that you bring up. And think about like in the olden days before social media, <laughs> back when we knew each other <laughs> at Bridgeport, um, you didn't, you, you couldn't get rejected that easily. You could get rejected, of course. That's just the nature of sort of like connecting with people and being vulnerable. You could always get rejected. But now you can get rejected like all day, every day, just based on a number of clicks. Right, and it feels superficial right. that it's, it's like we're constantly getting rejected. And then the, the moments that we're accepted are so fleeting because again, that's not based on who we are and how we're connecting with people. It's did the content that I put out resonate with somebody? Oh, it did. That's amazing. You know, I got, I had to sort of train myself to not care about the number of likes, but rather the quality of the conversations that I was having with people on social media. Right. right. Like if they left a, a cool comment or sent me a message, I'd be like, hell yeah, like that's what this is about. But if I get like five likes or 50 likes, I'm just sort of like, all right, I don't, I don't know which, what makes the difference. And, you know, yes, I have to pay attention to that to some degree in order to market myself. Um, but I'm not particularly good at that. I wonder why it's because my masculine isn't very strong. <laughs> um, 
but but yeah, I I care more about you know what people are saying than um, just the gesture of hitting a button, right? Right, because that that one comment or that one DM that can uh, push back against feelings of you know feeling a funk yeah. that you've been in for like weeks. You know, you can you'll you'll do the work, and I'll, you know again I'll speak for myself. You know, I'll do the work. Or I'll I'll drop three episodes, and I'll be like, eh, okay, you know, numbers aren't that great, but if I get one DM or one comment or one text, I'll be like, somebody liked it. I feel good. <laughs> F everything, F, F the sadness from before. I'm content and I'm happy. Yes. yes. I guess it's, it's fair to say this happened before social media. Cause as you said that, I just had this thought pop into my head. I used to, after I went to Bridgeport, I transferred to Hofstra and I, I worked at the radio station at Hofstra and That's cool. it was, it was like the coolest experience ever. And I am like a night owl. So I would do a lot of overnight shifts because nobody else wanted to do them. So I would just like go on air and just play whatever I wanted and had a grand old time. But the thing overnight is I felt like nobody was listening. And so I was just sort of like, I guess maybe I'm just doing this for myself, my own entertainment. I don't know. And then one day I got a call at like two o'clock in the morning from a truck driver who is, he was like, I have been on the road all night and every radio station just like put on automation and they're just playing like music from the computer. But I heard your voice on air and I thought this is so cool so I wanted to call you and say hi and like connect to you and I thought oh my god this is amazing that's dope yeah it was so cool and after that I got that energy of like wow people are listening and just because they're not calling in all the time doesn't, doesn't mean, mean they're not they're listening not attention. right 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 that's yeah. that's a dope yeah it was really cool <laughs> I was like what do you want to listen to it seems like you're the only person listening so I'll play whatever you want <laughs> So you were an, uh, a late night DJ at the, I the was, college? I was. I did daytime shows too, but because nobody was on air and I was like, well, I'm awake and I want to listen to music. So I might as well just play it for everybody else to hear too. <laughs> what What did you talk about late night? Did you just play music and talk about the music or did you, you have a radio personality? No. Yeah. I think I mostly just talked about the music. I think at that point in my life, what I was most excited about was just sharing music either like new music that maybe most people weren't listening to. Cause at that time I kind of listened to stuff that wasn't super popular or like doing the deep cuts on like a Led Zeppelin album or something. And just really being like, here's the stuff that radio never plays. Let's play that stuff. So I was like a real geek about just sharing music. And I think I was just really talking about that. That's cool. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> so going back into masculine and feminine energy um, and, you know, granted all of this has kind of intertwined with it. Yeah. But focusing on it as a main point, what are some suggestions you can you would give to people to maybe develop self-awareness or start the transition of understanding their masculine and feminine sides, what's more dominant and learning how to bring a bit more balance into their life? Yeah. Yeah. So I um I I think the best way to start is to just get an understanding for like what the different traits look like for each thing. And I actually have a table up. This isn't like a shameless plug, but it's just easier to see the visual. I have a table up um, at thehungryfeminine.com on my blog. I think it's the post is called qualities of the feminine and masculine. And so if, if you, if you're curious about just sort of seeing them in, in, in words, like on a screen, um, take a look at that. And my guess is like 99.9% .9 of people are going to read that list and they're going to know exactly like that's me. That's the thing that I do all the time. That's how I respond to things. And just like follow that instinct because that's okay. It's you're not wrong 
You're not bad if you're in one or the other, if you're in the light or in the shadow. There's, there's, we've got to remove judgment from ourselves, like as though we're doing something wrong when we start to uncover new things about ourselves. Because if we're really hard on ourselves, then we're never really going to get to know ourselves. We're, we're always going to stay a secret because it's not going to feel safe to really connect to ourselves that way. So just, just start with curiosity and then notice in the moments. And, and, and if, if it's hard to do it in the moment, I always like to do like a Monday morning quarterback kind of thing where it's like, okay, I just reacted very ineffectively to something. So let me like look at the tape and see what happened. Okay, it was at that moment that my feminine got triggered and went ballistic, and then I kind of couldn't control things anymore, right? So that gives me the tool of awareness for the next time that it happens, so I can slow down a little bit. And you're not going to get it right the first time, you're probably not going to get it right the first 10 times. But the more you build up the muscle of just noticing when either your masculine or your feminine takes over the situation, the easier then it becomes to foster the other one and then call that one into the game and be like, listen, there's a huge imbalance here and I can feel the imbalance because I'm suffering. I feel uncomfortable. I feel like I'm either so logical that I can't connect to people and I'm suppressing my emotions or I'm so emotional that my problem solving brain is like mush and I can't figure out how to get out of this. If you're in one state or the other, you're in an extreme. And I also have, because um, I think this could be helpful too, is just sort of like daily practices that um, people can do if they're finding that they're too much in excess of their feminine. So like for me, because I am in excess of my feminine and I own that, it is what it is. Um, active exercise, like cardio, running, hiking, boxing, um, staying on top of creating goals and timelines for things. Uh, creating and holding boundaries with other people, uh, making commitments, you know, saying that I'm going to do something and actually showing up instead of figuring out an excuse to like bail on it. Um, and like just utilizing coping skills to help me manage my emotions when they become a little too overwhelming. That for me, those are like practical steps that I can take to consistently, but also in the moment, uh, make sure that my, my masculine is being fed in a healthy way so that it can come up and, and sort of create that balance. Cause I think that's, for me, that's the biggest thing. Everybody may find that they need to do this a little bit differently. And if you have a coach or a therapist or somebody that you feel like could, could support you through this discovery, like by all means, go for it. Um, not everybody has access to that. And that's why I try to make as much of my content free as possible. Um, but some people may find that in order to find balance, they need to quiet one I find that I need to make louder the other one because my feminine's not going to shut up. I just know she's not right. And that's okay. <laughs> Let the girl do her thing. Like she's having a right. good time. She's like, she's, she's in her power, do it. Right. But if I can get my masculine to feel stronger so that it could come up and like create a conversation with my feminine. Now I'm cooking. Now I'm feeling kind of good about what's happening. So those are the steps that I take to do that. And there's there's more information about that too on my website. And I'm just saying that not to punt people to my website, but because again, it's- No, you, you, should, you should pump. I mean, that's what, <laughs> that's what, we, that's what we're here to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But it's also just easier to kind of like see it in, in text, you know? Right. So I, I want to imagine also that being able to have conversations with yourself in order to um, bring out the the right energy that you need for the moment 
when you're by yourself, it also kind of transitions into bringing it out when you're in situations with other people. How, how does that look like for you? And is it a easy transition? Do you, or is it, does it take courage or the, are there other things needed within yourself to kind of be able to bring out your masculine when you're dealing with people who are trying to suppress your feminine? That is a great question. Um, I think because I'm such an introverted sort of introspective person, I do so much of my work internally. Um, so I don't know that that people are even maybe recognizing the processing that I'm doing at that time. But I think for me, it starts very much with creating a boundary in that situation that starts within and then moves outward, which is to say that, you know, don't diminish my values, but just recognize, like, I'll point out like, oh, I think we have different values here. Like, right. it's not that one is right or one is wrong. And I've never had anybody push back and kind of like demean me in that way. Like I haven't, I guess, you know, like a person that might be like misogynist or kind of like extremely like dedicated to the patriarchy that they're just trying to, you know, uphold it, that they kind of come at me. I've never had that. And I think it's probably because I can, I can approach it with information, but also respect to the other person. I'm not telling you that you you're wrong. So don't tell me that I'm wrong. We just have different values and maybe right. we're not seeing that, but that's okay. We can just sort of live in that. So I'm, I'm looking at the qualities of the feminine and masculine table. Mm -hmm. um, there's three columns. What does the column on the left uh, represent? Is it just the the natural, um, neutral of each um, energy? It's sort of, and you're right, I should probably label that. It's sort of like the plane of existence. So like okay. where the, the masculine is very much a material, the feminines and the spiritual sort of intangible world. So okay. it's not, yeah, I guess they are neutral because they're neither good or bad. Um, they're just sort of like the medium in which they operate. Uh, so I, I, a wave of depression just kind of hit me. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, um, and it's because looking at the feminine, the masculine, and the masculine being the material world, with, which is, you know, very much this plane of existence. Mm -hmm. And it's the reality that, you know, we, we're in a masculine-driven world where we're conditioned, like, you know, we talked about the conditioning and, you know, you're just being part of the the system that you don't, that you have no other option to kind of exist in. Yeah. So, and, you know, looking at the feminine, denoting spirituality, which is something that I, you know, I've been after or actively seeking and desperately want, want, want to be a part of, mm. you know, spirituality for me is, is the metaphysical. I, I'm not sure if you uh, subscribe to that, mm -hmm. but I think, the how can I phrase this? The the feminine me me reading this tells me that the feminine is essentially more all powerful and more important because the material world is very limited. You know, we're only here in this life experience for a limited time. But if you believe in the metaphysical, whether it's through religion or spirituality or um, just universal energy, that's constant. That's ever present. So. One, would want to hear your, I guess, perspective on, on yeah. that idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting reaction that you had to that. And I'm really glad that you shared that. So yes, the the feminine is sort of this like, almost like everlasting kind of all powerful thing, but, but, but it needs the grounding of the feminine. If we were not, I mean, think about like, material in terms of our human existence. Do you mean it body. needs the grounding of the masculine? 
Yes. Did I say the okay, feminine? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The grounding of the masculine is very, very important. So if you think about just like our existence as human beings, part of that material world is our bodies that we live in. And we get so much from experiencing our lives through our bodies, all of the pleasure that we get to experience, all of the, um, the, the physical challenges that we can put ourselves through that give us like a sense of accomplishment, the, the acts of feeding ourselves and the act of like being able to facilitate conversation. If I didn't have a, a human body with a voice box and a mouth and all of these things, I wouldn't be able to communicate with you. So we might live in this spiritual world where maybe we're connected in some other way, but we can't connect. We can't quite, you know, do what we're doing right now, certainly, right? So there's so much beauty in the masculine and the way that it grounds us and gives us containment because chaos would ensue without it, without the, without the boundaries of it, without the structure of it. Um, it there, there would be so much that would be kind of hard to quantify and feel good about and feel you know, connected about. So, so yeah, they're, they're different, but, but I still don't think one's better than the other. How does that I mean, feel for you? <laughs> I, I, I mean, and if I did mean better, I, I mean, I don't mean in terms, I mean, I guess I mean in terms of the, the beyond. I mean, I always try to, my end focus or my end goal in life is always looking towards the, the next step of this life experience since it's limited. I, I have a deep desire to be aware of what's mm -hmm. next. And, you know, like looking through the words of, of the feminine, you know, spiritual, unmeasurable, which is essentially, you know, infinite. The universe is infinite to an extent, mm -hmm. irrational. You can't really rationalize the universe or how, how it began. It just is what it is. Um, being, presence, inner world, unseen, circular, infinite, and unconscious, which is beyond this realm. I mean, the, yeah. uh, this is, it's, it's a nice and it's an enjoyable new new perspective um and what the feminine represents i i, I guess that that's that's what i'm, I'm getting at and yeah. I, the, the, the the depression wasn't a i think the depression was acknowledging that i have to tap into my feminine yes. a lot more <laughs> and that that's the that's the initial innate feeling of being in the physical world world so you know talking through it the depression isn't uh it is. It isn't real, or, or it isn't. It doesn't uh, have true merit. There we go. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm glad you clarified. And I started to, as you sort of, as you started to clarify, I thought, oh, he's upset because he realizes how important the feminine is. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but imagine that, right? Okay, so imagine in our culture where I argue, and I think some people would argue against me, but very, very few. And I, and I could talk about it, so it's fine. But like we. In America, we repress the feminine. We say all of those things, the spiritual, the unseen, the circular, measurable, all of those things. We say we can't quite find value in that. And if you're engaging in that sort of imaginative creative process and all those things, we just think that that's like a hobby. We don't take it seriously. So there's so many narratives that say the feminine does not matter and the masculine is more important. But if you think about what you just said, which is the feminine is sort of like the crux of our existence. It's, it's where life is created from and it's where it extends on to forever. And so if we're suppressing and repressing in our culture and therefore in ourselves, the feminine, which is this all powerful thing, then if we, this is why we're anxious. This is why we're depressed. This is why we're addicted because our most natural instincts are being told that they're wrong and they're being shut down in their tracks. And that hurts. That hurts. 
Right. While, while you were saying that, I was thinking, um, I find it interesting that, you know, we, we tell people to suppress the unconscious and the spiritual, mm-hmm. but religion is very much about spirituality, but we've turned religion into masculine energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, would, would you agree with that? I would. And I think that my relationship to religion is like, I think I always find it hard to talk about because I had an experience, like I was raised Catholic and I was in, involved in all of that stuff. And I, I had, it, it's an interesting little world for me to yeah. uh, sort of grown up in. And I, I, I'm not Catholic anymore. So there's, you know, some indication of how that went for me. Um, and I don't have judgments against people that, you know, follow religions, but for me, it, it actually wasn't about the incarnation that I experienced of Catholicism. It actually wasn't about spirituality. It was about the rules that were imparted upon a culture used for oppression, used to harm other people, um, not necessarily for this like self-growth of just connect to something bigger than you. It's we're afraid of death. We don't know what's on the other side. So we're going to create all of these rules and follow them or don't. But if you don't, then you don't get to come with us. And I, I respect that uh, to the degree that like, there's a lot valid there and death is scary and knowing what happens after we die or not knowing what happens after we die is scary. So we want some community. We want some support. We want some answers, but I think that there is something that can be a little bit more limiting in the realm of religion, at least as I experienced it in Catholic church in Staten Island, New York, um, where it just, it didn't quite have the feminine. It was a very masculine experience for me. Um, so, so outside of the shadow, what are some other dangers of rejecting the other aspect of energy? Well, I think that, um, you end up just being very one-sided. Like, you know, if you are, if you are all in your masculine, even if it's a healthy masculine, what you're missing out on is connecting to people in a very vulnerable way and tapping into your feelings, which may or may not be of value to you. But I think that our emotions um, within, you know, reason or within some containment are, are, are beautiful things to experience. Um, our imagination is such a great tool that we're told that like we need to stop using when we're kids, but it's the thing that helps me personify my feminine and masculine and, and draw them and sort of be silly about it and not take it too seriously. Uh, it, it's the thing that even got me that insight in the first place. So, so you miss out on things. I think if you're too much in your feminine, first of all, living in this world is going to be really difficult for you because you're not going to be able to make money very easily. You're not going to be able to like, stay on top of things and, and get where you want to go. If you, if you're building a business or if you're trying to tell your story, or if you're trying to um, create something that you want to share with people, you have to also include the masculine traits in it so that it can get done. Because if all you're doing is just being and imagining, then nothing ever turns into something tangible that can be shared. So you just miss out on, on things that can be really wonderful and beautiful. Right. So, um, going to wrap up this episode. Any final thoughts on your end? Um, you know, I always, this sounds like a little far-fetched, but I, I always like to throw this quote out there because I think it really um, solidifies the need for just the self-awareness and like the balance is sort of like built into it. But Carl Jung, who is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst back, you know, I think like in the twenties, I forget when he was around, 
Um, but he says, what irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. And I always think that's such an important thing to remember is that when we're getting mad at people, when we're irritated with other people, it's not about the other person. It's that it's triggering something in us. And if we're able to compassionately, curiously look at that within ourselves, that's a moment where we can start to gain some of this awareness. And that's when we can start to get to know ourselves rather than just be mad at everybody else. Um, so that's just always a note that I like to throw out there. Absolutely. And, and on that note, you. thank sorry, you for having me here. I'm so sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but it's, it's, it was so fun talking to you and I appreciate you bringing me on. No, I appreciate you coming along. Um, you know, I told you I was disheartened by you pausing the podcast, but the episode you dropped, I think last week or yeah. earlier this week, it's, it's holding me down and you had some <laughs> great quotables. So it, it makes up for it, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So on that note, I'd like to end this episode of the Live, Lift, Love podcast, PEDs, Positive Enriching Discussions. I'm your host, Clifford Janice. You can find me on IG and Twitter at Gold's Conditioning. Vanessa, you know, feel free to plug yourself and let the people know where they can find you. Yeah, uh, the best place is for me on Instagram at The Hungry Feminine uh, or TheHungryFeminine.com. You can listen to the Live, Lift, Love podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and YouTube. Be sure to like, subscribe, share. And if you visit the Live, Lift, Love podcast on the Gold's Conditional website, please be sure to leave a comment. Until next time, peace.